and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values and the people behind the positions in our public conversations. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Clover Stroud, who's a journalist and best-selling author of three memoirs. When she was 16, her mother had a riding accident that put her in a coma. And although Clover's mother did eventually wake up, she was profoundly brain damaged for the rest of her life. She lived another 22 years. Then in 2019, Clover lost Nell, her sister who had experienced that early trauma alongside her. Understandably then, we spoke a lot about grief, about God, about creativity, and about horses. There are some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Okay, Clover, I am going to ask you, uh, what is the opposite of a gentle opening question? (laughs) There is no small talk, there's no chit chat, there's no what you had for breakfast, because I'm terrible at small talk, but I have the impression that you are too, and I mean that as a compliment. So I'm Mm. hoping you're going to be okay to go deep fast. Mm, Definitely. uh, and we, the thing that I really, um, the the way I the way I want to frame what is sacred to you is uh, with as much space as you need. It it came to me early um, when I was beginning to think about things as a as a way of understanding each other better, as getting beyond the things that we disagree on or our positions in public life, but getting mm. to the kind of deep values and principles that drive us. Um, uh, which we don't get much space to talk about, I don't think. Uh, and um, we try and bracket out kind of family and loved ones because they're sacred to everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and just let bubble up the thing that we have maybe tried to live by. Or another test that sometimes helps is if someone offered you money to give this thing up, mm. you would feel quite offended because it's not a kind of instrumental, uh, you know, just like maximizing comfort and convenience kind of thing it's 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 something deeper than that um having given you some some but not many parameters and a very difficult question what maybe comes to mind it's interesting I mean it's such an interesting question it's such an important question and it's such an interesting way to kind of know one another as well or attempt to know one another um but when you were talking, I was thinking about different things as I, you know, and I have been thinking in the last few days, um, aware that we're going to have this conversation about what is sacred. But when you were talking then, um, I felt uh, some kind of, I felt an emotion rising inside me. In fact, I felt myself for a second close to tears because of I was thinking about um, my relationship with various things in my life, emotions, stuff that matters to me, um, which together come together as something sacred, I suppose. And I and um, and when I think about what that is, uh, for me, what is really sacred, what allows me, enables me, encourages me to live my life in a way that I feel is true is um, a kind of, the thing that I grew up with, which was uh, a kind of sense of the importance of um, bravery and honesty. And those things come into my life in the form of poetry and horses. And uh, they are, for me, um, my relationship with horses is something which is, uh, I've tried to kind of resist, I've tried to move away from, but it has a, it has a sort of spiritual place in my life. And um, it's profoundly linked to my relationship with my mother and my sister and my childhood. My mother and my sister are both dead. My sister died three years ago and my mum died in 2013 after a very, very long illness where she had brain damage from a riding accident. But we grew up with, with horses and ponies, not in a kind of smart way, not kind of show jumping or, but just little muddy ponies out in the countryside. And for me, where I'm sitting here, I can see out into the field outside my house and there's a muddy pony out in the field there, surprise, surprise. And horses kind of represent a a link to my mother and my sister. And I know that family is supposed to be outside of this, 
But um, they're important because of the fact of both of those people being dead and my relationship with them in an, in an ongoing way, the way that I kind of bring them into my life and honor them and have a spiritual relationship with them is through uh, my the way that I feel about the horses that I have out in the field, which are all kind of quite scruffy, heavy cobs out there. And, and, and when I am with them, then I feel something which feels sacred to me and feels profoundly important. And it also feels really deeply relation, linked to my relationship with poetry, which is, I mean, I totally think that is a divine relationship, our relationship with words, our relationship with the kind of language of the, of that for me was there in my childhood and was a very rich and informative and kind of integral part of my childhood. And that is, the, the the poet that formed that more than anybody else is T.S. Eliot and the way that he writes about belief and uh, the human spirit and um, kind of what it what it means to struggle and what it means to be alive and and how difficult and beautiful and appalling it is to be a human. And so for me, I cannot think about horses without thinking about my dead mother and sister and my relationship with T.S. Eliot and my relationship with God and all of those things come together. So I don't know if I'm allowed, in answer to your question, for that to be a kind of, that to be too many different elements of the sacred, what is sacred to me coming together. But they are very profoundly important kind of um, alchemical mix of something entirely magical for me and entirely sacred, certainly. Yeah, uh, you're you're very much allowed. There's one thing I wanted to pick up in what you said about horses as this deeply spiritual thread in your life that you've tried to resist, or that mm. you you know you, it sounds like there's a there's a a complicated relationship. That I kind of wanted to ask why why would you why would you try and resist that? Um, because they bring a great deal of. Um, inconvenience into my life. (laughs) (laughs) They and bloody hard work, bloody hard work, muddy. You know, dangerous. I know they're dangerous. I mean, they they mum mum's mum had this accident when I was sixteen, and she was in a coma for several months. She was on her horse, and then when she woke up, she was profoundly mentally and physically disabled. And I think it's interesting that Nell and I, my sister Nell, um. Who who died of of cancer in two thousand nineteen? Both one hundred percent went towards horses after that. We didn't retreat from them. And people said, "Oh, you know, I find that so strange that you want to go and ride still." But riding and being around horses and being in the English landscape, actually, particularly that for me, the English landscape is um, it, it's rather like a. Um, a description from T.S. Eliot, actually, from um, Little Gidding, when he's describing the kind of the hedges white with May and the the uh, a, a sort of English. He, he describes a landscape which is the, the one which is really similar to the place where Nell and I grew up, which was a which was a village in Wiltshire that was um, low lying. It it had dark black hedges and green fields, very, very kind of muddy, wet fields um, and ditches with beautiful king cups in them and fields of fritillaries. And even just talking about that, actually, I, f- it, I find it, it really painful talking about it because it reminds me of mum so much. It reminds me of Nell so much. And horses are a presence always as a kind of um, something... Uh, ancient i mean i think there's something ancient about horses i think there's something eternal i think there's something incredibly obviously very powerful they're incredibly beautiful um and they are there i can see horses i can see mum and nell in this landscape and i can see the horses walking around behind us and i suppose i i yeah i have tried to go away from them because because of the inconvenience i have to you know i have to live in 
I'm married to someone who is, has no interest in horses at all or has never been around horses until he met me. And he is a very wonderful person and totally has embraced the fact that I love them, but he has no interest in them. So um, it kind of, within your relationship, horses then become this this sort of thing slightly, which is quite difficult to... Um, to manage and in a way if we lived in a city and I sometimes feel my life would be so much more convenient and easy if I lived in a city <laughs> but it would make yeah. no sense to me spiritually as well that kind of connection to this landscape and to the animals is so important but it is I mean it's also I suppose I've tried to go away from them because of a um they're dangerous mum you know mum had this terrible accident and uh, but but it totally didn't stop me, you know, after shortly afterwards, I was riding out for a racehorse trainer. I went off to Texas and ended up riding in rodeos. I've rode a lot in the Caucasus Mountains in Texas. It's taken, I've, I've in, in Russia, sorry, I've taken myself with horses to a perilous place. And I'm really interested by the way that that place of peril that, that we can get to in life and how exciting it is as well and how life affirming it is whilst at the same time being quite close to a sense of extreme danger potentially death you know based on my mother's experience it's it's, it's um but but when I'm away from them I just feel you know I had a period when I was living in Oxford in my 20s and, and my early 30s and um I was a single mother I had two children and I was really you know, it was difficult. I was supporting them completely on my own. Um, but I ended up buying this little black and white pony and finding some allotments. I used to keep them behind these allotments and it cost £10 a week. And I thought, OK, I can spend £10 a week on this pony. And um, that, so even even like in, in the most inconvenient circumstances, I found hmm. myself bringing them into life because... I want the children, My I've got five children, I want my children as well to have a relationship with them so much. Yeah. And it's strange because my kids are not really into them in the same way that I am. But then they didn't yeah. know my mother. And for me, they are yeah. a link to my mum. They're really powerful. And I feel as if I didn't have them, I'd almost be betraying that kind of... I don't know. I feel like I'd lose. I would lose hold of some kind of spiritual connection to Nell and Mum if I didn't have horses. Yeah, Clover. I wanted to ask you this at the beginning, and I got distracted by talking about our mutual friend. I'm aware that you are right in anniversary season. That December mm. is uh, your mum and your sister died around this time of year, and mm. I normally do a kind of pastoral check with guests because I, as I'm reading and listening to you a lot, I'm thinking it. You're, you're kind of repeatedly going back into grief and talking about grief. So I just wanted to check how you are doing today and if there's ways that I can make this as life-giving as possible and not leave you feeling wrung out. That, that's very kind of you. I um, I like to feel run out, wrung out. I like to feel, I like to feel it. And I think to have a conversation about, about all of this stuff is is uh you know is a real privilege and so i i do find it um you know i do find it painful and i do feel emotional talking about them but i also know that that's kind of part of fundamentally part of who i am and and actually in a way have always been even predating everything that happened to them um i think because yeah it was the anniversary of nell's death last week and um it is a really loaded time and and running up to an anniversary you do think a great deal about what you've been what you were doing with those people immediately you know in the time before when you were living in this exact time 3 years ago or however many time years ago it was what was happening in your relationship and i can remember you know, I actually remember the night before Mum's accident, which was on the 25th of November, one of the last, wasn't the last thing, because obviously she had the accident the next day, but um, Nell and I were all, always felt really bad about this because the night before Mum's accident, she said, oh, she always went to Evensong. We grew up beside a church and she said, oh, do you want to come to church with us? And I was 16, Nell was 18 
And she and my dad, Rick, were going to church. And we didn't, you know, we were just sort of being typical teenagers and we didn't go. And Nell and I always said after that, oh, I just carry so much guilt for that. You know, how much would I, have do, I would do anything for that now? And it was such an important thing for her as well. And, um, but it's strange, before an anniversary, you remember little things, you know, I remember where I was standing in the doorway when I spoke to her. You remember, you know, if I said to you, what were you doing on the 25th of November, 1991? You're not going to be able to remember it, but you, you've, I'm sure, got other dates which are really powerfully important to you. And it's very strange, the kind of, you know, energetic potency that is carried onwards through the years of a memory of a specific moment. Um, but I like talking about it. It's important. And I like talking about, um, you know, the transformation that comes with it as well. Yeah, I'm I'm glad. It was uh, some, uh, sometimes I play a little game with myself when I'm preparing to talk to people as I'm I'm reading their work and or I'm listening to them or I'm researching what they've done with their life and I try and guess what might be sacred to them and mm. the phrase that I, I'm spending I'm trying to do some writing at the moment and I'm spending a lot of time with this phrase fully alive and it mm. felt like your when you said I like to feel things it felt like my guess of what was sacred to you would be something around that around really living like really mm. being alert yeah in our lives and to the world and mm. um mm. Mm. and it, that really came through as you were talking about poetry and courage and yeah and yeah. horses I'm yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your childhood and the way I usually frame this is you're talking about the big ideas that were in your childhood religious mm. or philosophical or mm. political it sounds like there was a religious strand in there so I'd love to hear more about that could you just sort of paint me a picture um of young clover running around with nail yeah. and horses in the countryside um, so my mother had had three children, my three elder brothers and sisters from my from her first marriage, and she uh, split up with her first husband. She went to live in Oxford, and I have a sort of picture of her there, um, of being because it was sort of relatively, it was still relatively. Um, I, mean, I know her father, so her father uh, was a clergyman, and he really. Um, frowned upon the fact that she had left her first husband and was getting divorced. And she, and it was, I guess, the kind of late 60s, early 70s. And um, she was there with her three children. And my, and then she met my dad a few, a couple of years later, she met my dad, who was an undergraduate, who was like 11, 12 years younger than her. And he was um, doing English but he was a really really into drama and he was he was like directing and putting on lots and lots of plays so I have this like beautiful image of him and he's he he sort of looks a bit like my eldest son now with lots of blonde curly hair and mum being 12 years older than him with three children so it's quite an unconventional relationship right from the start then I suppose so, so the house was sort of full of different props that my dad was using for his student productions that he was putting on. Um, and I remember growing up with the feeling of this sort of the colour and the texture of of a dramatic life, you know, literally the, the life of the theatre around us when we were kids. And, um, and then when I was seven and Nell was nine and they'd been living in Oxford and my dad was um he then was away a lot of the time he was um like directing tv shows like he was one of the youngest people to direct um Coronation Street when he straight oh. after university and he was doing directing tv dramas and my mom was at home um and my three elder siblings had were kind of teenagers sort of starting to leave home and Nell and I were still at home and uh mum <laughs> Mum had an overriding desire to move to the countryside because she wanted to have horses in her life, and she, and so we moved when I was when I was seven from um, Oxford to this village in Mindy, and we and we moved into a kind of pretty big, extremely cold, extremely threadbare, but extremely beautiful house with. Um, which and Mum made it really, really beautiful, but it wasn't at all smart. It was like posters all over the walls and rush matting that was all kind of 
you know, shredded and old sofas and loads and loads of books and lots of animals, you know, horses and uh, mum had loads of chickens and ducks and peacocks and dogs. So there was a kind of feeling of of abundant life all around us. And my dad was away all week working. So Nell and I had a really close relationship with mum because we were on our own with her. And it was... You know, it was the 80s. And when you look back at that time, it feels, well, it feels like a different, I mean, it it is a completely different world in so many ways. But I did, I do have a kind of memory of the the homemade nature of it and the feeling of um, Halloween parties where we'd make all the costumes and do apple bobbing and, and a kind of um, messy, quite threadbare, but extremely beautiful, extremely emotionally rich childhood. And I was very, very, very profoundly loved by my mother, who absolutely adored me. And I know, I mean, I that is my kind of memory, is this kind of extreme love that I had for my mum and that she had for me. And I think it was a quite unusual that, you know, when I was 16, when the accident happened, I hadn't had a massive kind of normal teenage bust up with her. I was still really, really, really close to her. And she um, she encouraged, in, and as did my dad as well, in Nell and myself, a feeling that we could kind of live our lives on our own terms, that we could be the people, the women that we wanted to be. And that sort of bravery and, and something that, horses do give you as a child is this like independence and bravery they they allow you to escape from your parents into worlds where you have a relationship with another being that is much bigger and stronger and more powerful than you but which takes you into fields and takes you into a place of kind of muddiness and peril sometimes um and that i think and and nell and i spent a lot of time riding on our own and going through this incredible woodland near where where we lived, riding, and also actually where I live now, I live about half an hour from where I grew up, but it's it's um near the Ridgeway, near the downs uh, in Oxfordshire, and so it's a big, beautiful, open, ancient landscape which is kind of covered with standing stones and chalk horses, and we used to come and ride here as well, and um, and so there was a feeling of sort of freedom and art, but there was also. Mum was also, she wasn't like completely bohemian as well. She she minded about, um, she minded a lot about things like, you know, good manners and education. And she did mind about us going to church. That was a really big part of our childhood, certainly. And we, the house that we grew up in was right next door to the village church. So I would sit in my bedroom and there was a big wall between the church and, and, um, and and our garden. And every Wednesday there was bell ringing and the feeling of being in a church and mum doing the church flowers, a, a sort of small village church and, you know, sitting through endless services as a child is a very, very strong memory for me. And one that uh, at times I really you know, I can remember my confirmation really clear. I remember the shoes that I wore for my confirmation. I can remember the feeling of a sense of kind of growing up, I suppose, and growing into a new stage of my life. I can remember going to christenings. I can remember the Evensong on a Sunday night, although I bitterly regret that last one that I didn't go to. But the feeling of um, believing in God and believing in uh, the goodness of God was a really, really powerful strand through my childhood that I'm still trying to kind of understand, I suppose. Not really understand, but like hold on to actually, to kind of feel, I mean, I, I feel it absolutely, but sometimes I've, I, my, my, I, I have a kind of yearning to, to be in that place again and to be in the kind of safe sense of, um, childhood and belief that came and obviously adult life is so much more complex you know and nuanced and and um and we look back on our childhoods 
as a place of, well, I look back on my, I was lucky to have such a happy childhood and looking back on my childhood as a place of, of kind of real beauty and serenity and, and this feeling of intense love that mum wrapped around us is, um, is, is, is how I remember it. And I suppose the thing that I'm continually yearning for, reaching for, trying to recreate, trying to refind, trying to re refeel, you know, I think it's, that's what you're trying to do. You can't buy it, can you? You're trying to feel it again. You're trying to create it again in some way. Yeah. You, you write so beautifully. Uh, the, the word that I wrote down repeatedly um, as I was preparing for today was, was wild. And obviously it's in the titles of two of your books, of your mm. kind of 20s adventures with horses in dangerous places and then your wild and sleepless nights writing about motherhood which I so appreciated something less saccharine as a as a um depiction of motherhood but I wanted to kind of dig into you dig in with you about that word it particularly in relationship to God and and to spirituality because what I think this is a very poorly formed series of thoughts rather than a question. So forgive me while I grasp my way to something coherent. Um, I, I, what I really appreciated in your writing is you're trying to, to all the way through to be honest about what it feels like to be a human and to lose the people that we love and just the pain mm. of being a person and what it means to mother. And you're so honest about spirituality and belief as a thread in amongst that, that kind of slides in and out of focus. Um, but the way you write about it feels closest to my experience, which is of something quite wild, you know, mm. that we, we, we don't, we're not very good about talking about religion in this country. And when we do, it sounds safe, right? It sounds nice. It sounds, yeah. um, domesticated and yeah. suburban and institutional and you know more tea vicar and cucumber sandwiches yeah um and so I was so delighted to have something of the rawness and the wildness of what I feel when I'm kind of seeking to connect with the divine come through in your writing and I just wanted to say just ask you to if you could talk more about it and that and say there is full permission here because I, don't, I think not in all, in all settings it's a bit like grief isn't it not everyone knows what to do when you want to talk about god or you want to talk about the divine it makes us uncomfortable no definitely it's so interesting because it's sort of you feel you feel i feel a certain anxiety about getting it right or you know getting it right or wrong being able to explain what i really mean to explain what I'm feeling or trying to feel. And also, because my faith, my belief ch has ch changes, it goes through different shapes, it goes through different times, it goes through different rituals, that I, I also feel kind of... Um, slightly scared by it in some way or another. I want to feel it. And at times I do feel it. It's almost like, it's almost like creativity. You know, creativity is something that comes and goes. It's not always there. It doesn't always like show up when you show up at the page to, to, to be present to it. It isn't, it's a, it's something that is, is kind of nebulous and and it and it's it's you know you're kind of I'm trying to hold on to these threads which are blowing away from me in the wind and I think that that is the way that I think and feel about my kind of my belief in God and my and my faith which is that it is it is absolutely there but but it's also linked to me being a human being like it's linked so much to my kind of human frailties and maybe that's the whole the whole point and I suppose that's what I mean by like you worry about getting it wrong am I articulating what faith is in the right way but I know that when I am feeling my faith when I'm feeling my belief when I'm feeling something spiritual it is like a kind of feeling of uh something utterly 
utterly human, I suppose. And therefore, it encompasses all of my 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 failings and my fears and my desires. And I suppose one of the things also that that kind of worries me is that I don't think I'm very good at my, you know, I don't practice it enough. I don't go to church enough. I don't pray enough. And it's always like, I want to be, I want to know how to do that more. And of course, just like writing, you know, you, you do it by doing it. You do it by, by, you can't, I don't think you can be taught these things. You do it by turning up and being, being there, being alive to your creativity or being alive to your, to your faith. And I do feel as though creativity and faith, there is something in some way in that they're linked. There is a kind of divine sense of them being, being something bigger and other outside my life, which I cannot really understand. I cannot describe what God looks like. Nobody can describe what good God looks like. I'm so interested. I was talking with my children about that. And I remember talking with a priest about that and him saying, you cannot describe God because if you described God, then he wouldn't exist. Like he is beyond human comprehension. It is his, and, and in a way, I suppose I feel about about the creative spirit as well. And there is, in in the same kind of way, it is something sort of beyond comprehension in the same way that God is beyond comprehension. And then I wonder whether they are, when we're talking about God and faith, are we talking, is that talking about an absolute belief in the human spirit? And in a way, I think creativity is about an absolute belief in the human spirit as well. Um, and... And I have found myself in the last, so, so my my kind of belief, I suppose, is I, was, I went to church a lot as a child and then, and then I was kind of, as a teenager, less so. And then mum had her accident and then I really didn't go to church. Hmm, and I felt yeah. angry with the idea that there was anything divine like because, of course, I questioned something so horrific and it was so horrifying watching what happened to mum. It was so, I think if, I think if she died, I would have been able to, manifest my belief I would have been able to believe in God in a more in a cleaner and clearer way but because there was this sense for 22 years I had a sense of where has your spirit gone you know what has happened to you mum because you're still alive here on this earth and yet you can't walk you can't talk you don't know who I am you don't know anything that's happening to me you don't understand when I bring my babies in so where is your spirit spirit where is it you know where is it gone to and if there is a god is is her spirit with you god or is it here trapped on earth and i think it really made me question everything about my faith and actually question and then and just not really even like it was so difficult to comprehend what was going on to her and it was such an overriding permanent state of trauma that I was living within that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't comprehend. I couldn't comprehend what had happened. Dealing with severe brain damage of somebody you really, really love and then watching your entire world and their world completely destroyed by it and family life destroyed and the place of safety and security and love, that home, that abundant safe, beautiful place where God had been a really big part of it as well. It was just all gone in the most horrifying way. I didn't know, I didn't find going to church at all um, consoling. I felt furious with it, actually, really furious. And, but then, then I, um, I had two children in my 20s and I married somebody who was a Catholic And he wasn't really a practicing Catholic, but we got married in a Catholic church and his family were all practicing. And it was very important that we had got married in the Catholic church. And I found myself drawn in to going to mass. And I had these two little children and I sent them to a Catholic school and they started going to mass and they, their conversations about faith and about, um, the kind of rituals of faith that were going on in school were were at a really difficult time in my life because my marriage was very short. And um, I split up before my husband, who was an alcoholic, 
in my late 20s and I had two really young children to look after on my totally on my own. And I started going to mass with the children and I found something in the Catholic Church which I had struggled I just not I suppose not found, maybe not known how to look for but and not found as a result when I went to the place that was familiar which was a kind of the rural Church of England village church when I went into those churches I almost felt as though my relationship with mum and what happened to her and her spirit had become so confusing because of her brain damage and her ongoing life and death that I didn't know where she or God existed within that space. And when I went into the Catholic Church, I felt a kind of really um, deeply humbling, extraordinary loss of myself and loss of my trauma and loss of my sense of this searching and horror of where have you gone, mum, and where is your spirit and what's happened? And I felt quite overwhelmed in a really, really beautiful way by it. And I I loved going to mass and I loved hearing the children talking about what it was doing in their lives. And it was strange because when I got married for the second time, I carried on going to mass, but I wasn't allowed to go up for communion And I rem- because I had been divorced. And I remember some people saying, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, your faith is your faith. But I did, and I do, um, you know, respect that as part of, part of, the church, something that I didn't really understand. But I have found, because because I also converted to Catholicism um, about six years ago. I was, um, I'd been going, going to church in Oxford and I just realized that my, my desire to be there, my desire to be, present with God and present with this kind of like huge relief of the loss of my ego and my anxiety and my trauma I felt when I when I um when I went you know when I went into this church and that really surprised you know that that was extraordinary it was an extraordinary beautiful feeling that I cannot comprehend yeah that's very beautifully put clover um have you read nick cave's new book faith hope and carnage um i have got it by my bed actually but i haven't yet read it i'm very interested by by him and i love his writing and i get his um you know the red hand letters and i i kind of always i'm interested by the different things that he says about well i mean many different things i went to him first for grief actually after after he was writing a lot about grief after his you know his son died so tragically his first son yeah. died so tragically and um i found the way that he wrote about him and his wife embodying grief as a way of living i found that really helpful so you he is also a guest on this series and um with his friend who has written the book with sean and um you you remind me of each other so much of the things that you're circling around the um interrelationship between creativity and grief and the divine um I just wanted to read you a little bit um, uh, about, because he, his, his intuition that grief is both the worst, you know, griefs like losing your mother or your sister or your son uh, are both the worst things that can happen to a human being, but also in strange ways are some sort of portal to... Yeah a part of life and a part of experience that you can't somehow get to otherwise, that there's something transformative that connects you with 
human vulnerability and human preciousness. And one of the lines that stuck out to me is he said, it feels to me in this dark place, the idea of God feels more present or maybe more essential. It actually feels like grief and God are somehow intertwined. And I'm just really interested in kind of when I hear echoes of themes in different people, I'm really interested in what's going on and whether you think through your incredibly kind of incandescent and beautiful and honest writing and and other artists that the mood to talk more openly about grief and loss and what it means to be a human is also somehow opening up space for people like Nick Cave to talk about God, you know, for for lots of people to say, I, I won't be shamed out of these intuitions that I don't know what to do with. I won't be shamed out of these longings for there to be love beyond us, which I feel like for the last maybe two decades, there was quite a lot of social stigma around all of those bits of life. Does that make sense to you? It makes total sense. And you saying it is you just think there shouldn't be any, it's so odd that there, I mean, it's not odd. There are reasons, there are reasons for it. And there are reasons for people sort of you know, doubt and anger and and yeah. really good reasons. Some of yeah, them, yeah, really, really good reasons. But the 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 fact of, and I will say, fact of accessing something divine, something beyond comprehension, beyond our, you know, we couldn't contain it. We cannot contain what belief is really within our physical, intellectual bodies. It's it's beyond us, I think, and. And I mean, I don't mean beyond us because it is within us as well, but it's kind of, it's so big. It's so, um, it's so big and yet also so much a kernel as well. But I think that, um, yes, I do think, and actually I'm also interested as well that I think that Elizabeth Gilbert talks about creativity and faith in a kind of interchangeable way as well. And I, and I, um, I'm excited by and really interested by and um and this is what I was saying but by that and I and yet I also feel what I was what I said a few moments ago a kind of a fear about it as well because you want to take it you want to go further with it you want to know where it's taking you you want to feel it more and sometimes there's a fear of will it will it Will it show up for, you know, what am I going to find? Is it is it going to be as, I, I feel I'm on the cusp of something that is really explains or helps me find my, the kind of pain of my human existence as a kind of salve to my human existence. But will it, will it provide that salve? And of course, it won't provide, you know, that salve endlessly, but it, but it might in some ways. And I suppose, yeah, there's a, there's a fear of, of of pressing it of touching it of pushing it of of um of of trying to one of the things i write about in my this new book i've been writing about i've been trying to write about home and what the kind of spiritual what you know it's very much the way that we're talking now is very much how i'm trying to write about home and i I talk about something which I feel really strongly, which is when I think about the house that I grew up in, where I was really happy, mindy, this beautiful house with the ponies and the the you know the kind of threadbare beauty of it. I can um, because I, when it was sold, I never saw it empty. I, when I left before everything was, I went to live in Ireland and I left before the house was emptied. So, and that was two years after Mum's accident. And in my mind, I feel, I really feel. I truly feel, I truly believe that a, a not a version, but like part of me and now mum and my dad are in that house still. And I, um, I don't, I know the house was sold a few times. I don't want to look at it on Rightmove or anything like that because I know it's all like, you know, it's all been completely done up and it's completely different. I'm sure it's very sort of glitzy and amazing and they've made it. I don't want to see those pictures. I, that would be absolutely, 
that would be the opposite of sacred. That would be like, that would be a terrible thing to happen to me. I never want to go back there. I never want to see it again. Because for me, in my in my mind, in my heart, it's still as it was when I was a young child and we're all there. And it's a sort of place of really, really sacred, um, sacred safety. And I was writing about this and I was saying in my writing, I was writing about the fact that I truly believe that, but I mustn't test it too hard. I mustn't try and like talk to Ma. I can put myself in the kitchen of that house as a eight-year-old child, but I mustn't try and talk to mum because if I try and talk to mum there, then I'll be then I'll be testing it too much and I won't know what she'll say and I won't be able to have a conversation with her as my eight-year-old self informed by who I am now. But if I just go there and kind of sit at the table, then I can I can spiritually and it feels literally and creatively kind of connect myself to to that place that was so so important to me and it's a bit in a way i suppose it's a bit like faith is i feel i don't feel adept at it and i feel scared of 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 testing it in some way or another i feel scared of trying to have that conversation you know having trying to have the conversation um with the divine if that's the right way i feel scared by how to how to communicate how to um manifest my faith i suppose the metaphor i sort of use in my brain to myself is sort of holding god out of just in the corner of my eye <laughs> right because if you look straight on like I'm, I either might be blinded or there might be nothing there. Like it's really yes. the, the, the leap of can this take my weight? Yes. It's what my whole faith journey has been about. Like increasing, like letting what I, the, the language I use is letting the love of God, like increasingly take the weight of my life and the weight of my pain and the weight of my, you know, all the, 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 all of all of the rawness of being a human being like increasingly let that be hold, held in the love of God but every so often I panic and jump off or you know feel like I'm free falling or it just like slides out of focus but the yearning do you think the yearning is what faith is I don't know what it's just where all the words start to fall apart in your hands, don't they? Yeah. So that's how Nick Cave talks about it. Like maybe the doubt is in a, itself part of the part of it. Um, but yeah, I honestly like. So C.S. Lewis talks about it most powerfully for me, who also writes amazingly about grief. Um, this sense of and it relates to home as well. This is all interconnected. That. You know, nostalgia is this like homeward, this longing for home. And we spend a lot of time kind of longing for a home behind us. And I think you in particular really do have somewhere in your heart and in your memory that feels like a home. But he also says, in some ways, home is ahead of us. Like home, if we find in ourselves a desire that cannot be met in the world, we it may indicate that there is, you know, something beyond the world, that our longing for a sense of homecoming and encounter, and that that, it's, sometimes it feels like someone's like struck my heart and the note that that like the my heart tuning fork this is mangled but my heart tuning fork is making is is sounding with something far away right that is disguised by the brokenness of the world and that it's when I sort of let myself sit with that note then the love of God can kind of come into focus or feel most present for me um, but it's, it's, it's so vulnerable and raw. The feeling is so it like bittersweetly, sort of exquisitely painful. Yeah. That it does take a lot of courage to let myself pursue it. It's only when I do that I do feel fully alive, that I do feel like I'm really living. Well, not only when I do, but that, that, you know, that sensibility, that turning towards an attention that I think is turning towards me. Yeah. 
It's increasingly like, this is what life is. <laughs> yeah. I've also been interested by the link. So at 18 months ago or so, I stopped drinking as well. And I think that the kind of way for me, and I stopped because I was just, I mean, for various different reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons was that, um, one of the reasons was partly because Nella stopped in the last two or three years of her life. And she, because of her treatment, because of her cancer, and, um, but she also had, she was an incredibly creative person, but and her creativity became supercharged in the last two or three years of her life. And we talked a bit about the way that she felt as though um, in total sobriety, there was, a, she said, it's not just like not drinking for a week or, you know, it's not the same feeling as that. Or even if you don't drink for a month or whatever, it's not like that. It goes, you're going further and further and further with it. And she said, it's as though the kind of cobwebs are like being drawn away from your eyes more and more and more the further you take yourself into that space of kind of total presence with your human self and all of the all of the kind of pain and frailties of that and you're not allowing yourself any time off from it in the way that drinking a bottle of red wine gives you time off from the inside of your head like you are absolutely <laughs> there the whole time and and I find it really difficult and I yearn sometimes to, you know, to have that kind of mini vacation of your mind where you can just be drunk and, and or just have a couple of glasses of wine even where, you you know, you're changing your, the um, frequency in your head. And, and I, I, I've, I've been feeling it really strongly in the last few weeks, really, of like, a, of this sort of desire to journey further into my um not into my consciousness because it's actually getting away from my consciousness you know that's what I want to get away from and that's when I go into a Catholic mass why I feel this like loss of my consciousness which I just find so exquisite I love the feeling of it and I I haven't been to mass very much recently because I got very I actually got really frustrated taking my children to mass and mm taking my little boys to mass and spending the time trying to make them stop shouting. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. really, really... Spiritually, uh, deeply unsatisfying going to church with young children in the service. <laughs> and and then, you know, COVID and everything like that. And I have to admit, I have, um, I have not been, but when I have occasionally been, I've felt such a sense of relief you know relief just a like just a kind of bathing in a feeling of relief and I'm I'm interested by the kind of joining as well of of total presence with yourself the the kind of total um total sobriety and the uh journey of the spiritual as well and like where there is a kind of intersection there so there's like a really exciting exquisite almost so exquisite that it's quite a terrifying kind of intersection I suppose um and then again this fear but maybe there is no intersection and therefore should I do I pursue it do I press it how do I how do I pursue it anyway what does that mean I, I didn't know what to expect from this conversation actually and it's been really incredible for me it's been so useful it's made me think so much more clearly it's made me feel so much I found it incre incredibly like beautiful and 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 really really wonderful and really um important this has been a really important hour in my life and I'm really deeply <laughs> grateful to you <laughs> oh, I'm cry again um Clovis Stroud, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. It's been a joy. Well, look, I know I'm not supposed to have favourites, um, and I genuinely do end up liking almost every single guest, and that includes the ones that I really, really do not expect to when I am preparing. There is something just intimate and lovely about listening to someone reflect on their deep things. But clearly, I don't often meet anyone who's as intense as I am. And Clover is, and it was such a joy um, 
to hear her talk and hear her thoughts and have her share so uh, generously and openly about her life, her sacred values of honesty and bravery um, are just very inspiring things and uh, particularly to put them in then kind of the concrete terms of poetry and horses and that they show up in her life, these two sources of um, meaning and comfort and uh, places to anchor her life was a really, um, yeah, a really a kind of beautiful entry point into our conversation. And we only covered it in quite a scattergun way, which is entirely my um, my failure to do a nice, neat chronological guide for you. But Clover has had quite an extraordinary life. You know, she had this very early grief and then reacted to that by going on some really quite dangerous adventures with horses um, in Russia and in Mexico. Um, and then she was a single mother, um, which I think is a extraordinary adventure in itself. Um, she now has five kids, which is another type of adventure. <laughs> and she's had this second um, absolutely gutting loss of the sister um, that has been so precious to her, Nell Gifford, who was the founder of Gifford Circus. Um, and it's really noticeable that she's tried to metabolise or to compost those losses and those adventures um, in ways that help other people think through their own losses and their own adventures that help them make meaning of their feelings and particularly of grief. It's her real kind of, the thing that she returns to again and again is this sense of grief, of grief as either something that makes us shut down or something that can help us live more fully and more deeply and more freely. Um, and again, as I said, it really connects with my conversation with Nick Cave that, and Sean actually, um, that grief strips away what's unnecessary. It strips away the distractions of life and the things that present themselves to us as important but actually aren't and says, okay, so what is life about? How are you going to love well? Um, how are you going to live this day that you have been given? And this idea of kind of peril and grief as a possible portal to kind of deepening our experience of being alive um, we kind of know it, but we also deny it. And it can be hard to say because it sounds like you're glorifying pain or suffering. It can say, it can sound like I'm being a typical Christian sort of, you know, Nietzsche's accusation that Christians are somehow sort of sadomasochistic, that we glory in suffering, that we um, aren't doing the important work of trying to remove suffering from the world because we're too enamored with it. But I think I talk to my kids quite a lot about Wally, the film Wally. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's amazing. Um, which is this kind of parable of what happens when humans have maximum comfort and convenience. And it's not pretty. We become um, sort of uh, brain dead blobs, essentially, um, numbed out on entertainment and. It's not that I want to glorify suffering, but given that suffering is a fact, I want to invite myself into seeing it as an, a doorway and as an opening um, into the possibility of being more hu fully human. Because Wally shows me that um, the opposite makes us less fully human, less empathetic, less compassionate less humble, less alive. Um, yeah, and I really appreciated how Clover spoke about faces, this thing that slides in and out of focus, and she did it a lot more eloquently than David Cameron's classic, like, Magic FM in the Chilterns, um, you know, goes in and out of of signal. Um, although that phrase has been so quoted that it was clearly memorable. Um and uh, Clover is also, I think, in the Chilterns. So that's interesting. Uh, but yes, this sense of 
you know, groping in the dark a bit and words coming towards you and then falling apart in your hands and the difficulty of talking about these experiences and these longings and these intuitions that there's something beyond us um, and something between us and something within us that we don't have adequate language for. Um, and I was just really grateful for her, to her for exploring that with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacred Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. You can find me on social media. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, big thanks to the production team, Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey and we are edited by Drew Hawley. This podcast is a project of a think tank called Theos, which does a lot of different things. It also has another podcast called Reading Our Times, which is um, a kind of more straight, ideasy, book-focused podcast presented by my friend Nick Spencer. Um, if you're looking for a new podcast, you could go check out Reading Our Times. Um, it would make you feel extremely informed about what's going on in the world. And uh, you can check out all the other work of Theos at theosthinktank.co.uk.